Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Colton Bushy's shooting death and the subsequent acquittal of the man who killed him touched off a national debate in Canada over race and justice. During their time of grieving, Bushy's family were reluctantly thrust into the center of the debate with little guidance or expertise about public discourse. Since then, they have worked with other organizations to help others unexpectedly confronting public scrutiny. We'll hear about it right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. To help tackle the violence in Alaska Native villages, a bill in Congress would expand tribal court jurisdiction. In a pilot program, up to 30 Alaska tribes would be able to hold criminal trials and sentence anyone who commits domestic or sexual violence in their villages, even if the offender is non-Native. Alaska Public Media Washington correspondent Liz Ruskin reports. Michelle Demert, Law and Policy Director at the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center, says perpetrators who prey on women and children are really smart. They know where they can get away with crimes. They've taken advantage of villages for, you know, forever. I mean, this is an issue from first contact where they've known that they can do things with impunity. And, you know, this is our chance to say no more. Senator Lisa Murkowski added the Alaska pilot program to a bill that would renew the Violence Against Women Act. The last time VAWA was renewed in 2013, it allowed lower 48 tribes the power to prosecute all cases of domestic violence on their reservations, regardless of the defendant's race or tribal membership. Murkowski remembers how controversial it was. There was a great deal of concern that this was going to change administration of justice. It was, it was going to be, uh, there were not going to be courts that were serious. It was, it, was a, it was a matter that was very hotly contested and debated. Now more than two dozen tribes exercise those powers with grants and technical assistance from the Justice Department. Murkowski says it works, and the predictions of terrible injustice have not come to pass. She says the change the bill makes for Alaska is limited. We're not creating um, Indian country through this. It is, it is just a recognition that in order to provide for a level of safety in our communities, we had to look to some alternatives. But tribal jurisdiction is a little trickier in Alaska. Of Alaska's 229 tribes, only one, Metlakatla, has a reservation. Many of the others have tribal courts that decide child protection and adoption cases, bootlegging, and interpersonal violence. Their power over non-members is limited. The House and Senate versions of the VAWA reauthorization bill would change that for participating tribes. The Senate bill relies on census tract information to define the jurisdiction boundaries, and it leaves it up to the U.S. Justice Department to decide whether a tribe is eligible. Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy did not take a position on the expansion of tribal criminal jurisdiction when asked about it last week. He said he's still reviewing the bills but will ensure, quote, everybody's constitutional rights are protected, unquote. 
I'm Liz Ruskin. Another grim discovery of graves at former residential schools in Canada. The Kiskus First Nation in Saskatchewan found more than 50 grave sites using ground-penetrating radar at two schools in and near the First Nation. The community hosted a more than two-hour press conference Tuesday. Chief Lee Ketchamonia. We had unmarked graves in our community, in our common areas that we, where we drive every day, that we walk every day. We passed by them, never realizing that there was graves, graves there. And that's, that's, that's got to be the most hurtful part, is, is, is the way they were hidden. First Nations across Canada have conducted similar searches following the May 2021 discovery of more than 200 remains at a former residential school in British Columbia. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. A historical trauma masterclass taught by Dr. Ruby Gibson and staff provides tuition-free online training to tribal members who are therapists, counselors, social workers, and traditional healers. Enrollment deadline is February 21st at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous population. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The 2016 shooting death of Colton Bushy, a 22-year-old First Nations man, sparked debate over gun laws and racism in Canada. It also thrust the Bushy family into the center of the contentious debate. There are other instances in which Indigenous families are unexpectedly forced to deal with the media, complicated legal issues, and protracted fights for justice. Jay Tatusis stepped up to speak for the family in the Bushy case, as part of their fight for justice, she proposed a resource guide for families like hers. With help from academics, advocates, advisors, and family members, she is part of the Tools for Indigenous Family Survivors of Violence initiative to help families become better informed about the legal system, their rights, and navigating interactions with law enforcement and media. We'll talk more about the toolkit and related matters this hour. And as always, you can join us. Has your family been in a similar situation? Or do you know an Indigenous family who has? What resources do family survivors of violence need? Please give us a call today, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us today from Edmonton, Alberta in Canada is Jade Tatusis. She's the sister and cousin to the late Colton Bushy. She's Plains Cree of the Red Pheasant First Nation and a member of the Rocky Boy Chippewa Cree. Welcome to Native America Calling, Jade. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Sean. Joining us also in Edmonton, Alberta today in Canada is Dr. Tasha Hubbard. She's an associate professor at the University of Alberta in Native Studies and a filmmaker. Her film, We Will Stand Up, follows the Bushi family as they fight for justice. Dr. Hubbard is Nehiao and Papikasis First Nation in Treaty 4. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Tasha. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Sean. 
And also rounding out our group of guests today and joining us from Victoria, British Columbia in Canada is Dr. Gina Starblanket. She's an associate professor in indigenous governance at the University of Victoria. She is Cree and Suto and a member of the Star Blanket Cree Nation in Treaty 4 territory. Gina, welcome to the show. Um, hi, thanks for having me. Jade, I, I want to begin today by offering my sincere condolences to you and your family for having to go through this horrible ordeal, the tragic loss of a family member. And I, I do applaud you all for your resilience, your leadership, and your bravery. Before we begin the conversation, is there anything you'd like to say on behalf of your family? Um, I just want to uh, say thank you for this opportunity and making space for this conversation and uh, bringing my, my late brother Colton Bushy forward and just letting letting people know that he was a, he was a good he was he was a good guy. He was a compassionate and silly silly brother and we miss him greatly at every ceremony and every occasion and uh, just want to bring him into this space and acknowledge him in this conversation. So thank you for having us here. Absolutely, Jade. And again, you went through this, this terrible trauma. I can't imagine what that would have been like. And on top of that, you had to represent your family and this work to honor Colton's name. Can you tell us what that process was like? Uh, it was, it was a nightmare, uh, even reflecting on it now, it's sometimes it felt just surreal going through the experience of it all. And it's, um, it's pretty disheartening to know that there are other families out there who go through the same ordeal and, and continue to stand up for their loved ones as well and advocate for justice. Now, Jade, you did stand up as the family spokesperson was there anything in your previous work history or life experience that could have prepared you for this role? Um, I was always a shy speaker. Being in the spotlight is never something I foresaw or wanted to, to be in. But uh, as I reflect on that question, I, I think a lot of it comes from my upbringing around powwow dancing. Uh, I've been dancing all my life and been able to connect with my community and my culture. And I, I believe that gives me strength and that confidence. But also my education, being around family members who've also stood up and spoken out to injustice, whether it's mistreatment from, you know, um, store employees to to what uh, we experienced here. But also my degree. I'm, I'm the first in my family to get a post-secondary education. I achieved a Bachelor of Arts in Native Studies from the University of Alberta. And just having that, that knowledge and understanding of colonialism and the history of violence perpetrated on Indigenous people, I believe that gives me confidence to be able to push back on the colonialism that's imposed on us. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, how okay, like being in a store and being treated rudely or unfairly by an employee, because as you mentioned, injustice, it, there's this full spectrum, right? And, and sometimes we think of things like that as relatively minor events, but they're not a minor event. And when you're a Native person, you know, there's a lot of harm and a lot of pain that goes into something that might seem so insignificant, like somebody being rude in a store, but yet also then experiencing the full realm of this trauma, such as the loss of life that your family has been through. So Again, just a really, really insightful perspective. 
And Jade, what, what was it that motivated your family and sparked this idea to help other families after going through this process? After the trial, well, even during the trial, we've had several other families reach out to us directly and express that they lost a loved one and that they're starting the, the trial process. And, you know, some have even said, when this happened to us, all I thought about was your family. And I thought, oh, no, like what happened to them is going to happen to us. So they would reach out with questions about what do I do when the police aren't talking to us about the investigation? What did you guys do when you couldn't contact the Crown prosecutors of the case? You know, So they were reaching out and asking for advice. And having those conversations one-on-one can be very heavy. And we want to help. But the other thing is, is that we can only speak to the experience that we had and the things that we tried to do. And I still had questions even, you know, like, what... What were all of our rights? Were, what were all the opportunities or possibilities that we could have explored or, or done? And so, and acknowledging too that different parts of the country have different laws, different processes. So what we did in Saskatchewan may not apply to somebody in somewhere else in Canada. So I reached out and I expressed that to, uh, to my friend Tasha, to my relative Tasha, and it, it just kind of grew from there is how can we better support other families and help them take back their power and their confidence in their fight for justice. Now, Jade, we should provide some context for our listeners as to what we're talking about. Um, can you explain a little bit about the incident that led to Colton's death? Uh, yeah. So on in August of 2016, my brother Colton was out with a group of his friends on a summer day, went swimming just behind our reserve, our community. And on their travels back home, they went on to a farmer's property. And on that property, um, the farmer's name was Gerald Stanley. He, he took my brother's life, shot him in the back of the head. And from there, two years later, we went to trial and this white settler got acquitted of all charges and was not held accountable for taking the life of my brother. And as I understand it, Colton was actually asleep in the back of a vehicle when this alleged trespassing incident occurred where the farmer felt that they were on his, they were on his land, but apparently, I mean, Colton was in the back seat asleep during this whole situation, right? Yeah, he was sleeping in the back when when everything occurred. So I can only imagine what it was like for him to wake up and and what happened to him. But need I remind you that the property that we're referring to is on Treaty 6 territory, you know, the ancestral lands of the Plains Cree. So when we reflect on this idea and notion of property, we, we need to remember that these were our homelands. And in fact, the farm that he was taken on was right behind red pheasant like literally right behind our our situated land in that area so about how long from the time of the killing until the verdict was reached how long was that whole process the whole judicial process the trial and everything leading up to it so um colton was taken from us on in august 2016 
And the trial and everything, the acquittal took place in February 2018. So I would say a little over a year and a half. Okay, about a year and a half. And during that whole time, what kinds of resources or support was available to your family, if any, to help you get through this ordeal? Um, And that's the thing, you know, like when you... You don't expect to lose a loved one, especially to be your loved one to be murdered. So going through the process, we didn't know what to expect at times. Like they, there's this notion of victim services in Canada that seems to be very lacking in terms of their support and guidance. And when we reflect even on the history between Indigenous people and the Canadian legal system, we see we the, what we experienced was the court systems and all the officials, the agents that work within the system, they refuse to communicate with us. They refuse to, to share any information. The entire length, we had to advocate for meetings. We had to ask for, for updates. And a lot of times we were met with silence. We were not given information. Or we were told very fluffy answers like, oh, we're doing everything we can and you've got to trust the process. So at times we were told to just sit idly, but (laughs) that didn't Mm -hmm. feel right to me. That didn't feel right to my auntie or anyone in my family or our supports. So we had people step forward and offer advice. Like um, we we even hired our own lawyers. Folks, you're listening to Jade Tatusis talking about uh, the aftermath after the killing of her brother and cousin, Colton Bushy. We'll be back right after this break. A tiny Nebraska town just over the border from the Pine Ridge Reservation was once known as a destructive source of alcohol. After a grassroots effort to close the liquor stores, a new plan is emerging that would make White Clay, Nebraska a hub of rehabilitation and healing. We'll hear about it on the next Native America Calling. Looking to get your high school diploma? Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute offers Native Americans ages 18 or older training and preparation courses for the high school equivalency diplomas in person and online beginning May 4th. All attendance and testing fees for this program are waived and resources will be available to help with supplies and living expenses. Space is limited. Application deadline is April 8th. More by calling 505-382-4287 or at sipi.edu who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking about what it's like for families and communities to handle the after effects of a violent crime or murder. Where can folks go for support while navigating the legal system? Who can speak to the press on behalf of the family? We'll hear more from our guests about a toolkit designed especially for Indigenous families of victims of violence. And if you have questions or comments, please join us today by calling 1-800-996-2848. Before we went to break, we were listening to Jade Tatusis. And Jade, I'm sorry, that was kind of a quick a quick exit there. You were still talking, but you were explaining a little bit about the aftermath um, of your brother and cousin's killing and the trial and the legal process and whatnot. So please, Jade, go ahead and finish your thoughts. Oh, no worries. Thank you, Sean. Um, yeah, I was just sharing that our experience with the Canadian legal system up here is we were, we ended up having to hire a lawyer to help to help us understand the process, what to expect, 
and to also inform us on our rights because it honestly, the whole time, if it didn't feel like the man who took my brother's life, Gerald Stanley, was on trial, it honestly felt a lot of the times like my brother Colton, the victim, the one who lost his life, was the one on trial. And so it just, it's, it just speaks to the systemic racism and discrimination that Indigenous people face, and we felt it fully and completely. So it's through, it's through that and, and sharing our story and speaking out that we were able to meet individuals such as uh, Tasha Hubbard and Gina Starblanket and others who stepped forward and offered avenues to explore um, different things we could do. And then even after the acquittal, even though the Canadian legal system did not hold him accountable for taking the life of my brother, we continue to pursue justice. We continue to speak out. We continue to do everything we can so that no other family would have to go through what we went through. And if they did find themselves in similar situations, what could we do to support them? And I think that's where the guide, the toolkit, comes, comes into place. Well, tell us more about this toolkit, Tools for Indigenous Family Survivors of Violence. What's all included in it? So this, the toolkit itself that um, we created mainly focuses on Saskatchewan and Alberta, speaks to uh, treaty rights, to Aboriginal rights, health resources, um, police interaction, how to navigate the media, um, what to expect in the legal process. There's even a booklet that has that talks about for people who want to support the family. So friends, what can you do? Uh, just general public even. You see the injustice, what can you do? So it's got eight booklets that share information as to different things that my auntie and I felt, as well as our supporters, as to what could better inform and help other families be aware of their rights and just like I said, reclaim a bit of that power back that gets taken from us, stripped from us in this entire process. Jade, have you gotten feedback from families that have used the, the toolkit already? So we have shared it with just a few people, but we actually launched it just last week on February 9th. So February 9th is a day of act. It's a it's a day that we call people to reflect because that's the day that Gerald Stanley was acquitted of uh, the murder of my brother. So we call that like a day of action, a day of reflection to what has changed since 2018, if anything, and what should we be doing? What are discussions, teachings that should be happening? So just last week, we publicly launched it online. Okay. And Jade, I'm really inspired that in spite of this horrible tragedy that your family had to go through, you were able to make something good happen in the form of these resources for families who are survivors of violence. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about the toolkit, but before we do, I'd like to bring in our second guest today, Tasha Hubbard. And Tasha is a professor at the University of Alberta in, in Native Studies and also a filmmaker. And she recently made this this amazing documentary we will stand up and tasha i was able to stream the movie before the show and it details the bushi's family ordeal um in in a very very vivid detail it, it's moving uh painful and difficult to watch at times but it's also a beautiful story about the strength and resilience of indigenous peoples tasha what inspired you to make the film well you know i 
I had um, was finishing a film, actually, and I was driving back to Saskatchewan, and I had my son and nephew with me, and they were nine at the time. And that's when I saw the news about Colton's passing on social media. And, you know, I, I uh, knew Jade from before. We're, we're related through marriage. And I just felt so deeply for her and this young man's family. And I didn't know the circumstances. I just knew they'd lost someone. And as soon as the details came out about just how quickly, you know, the violence came from the moment those young people entered the property, we're talking a couple of minutes. This wasn't a an argument that escalated and, you know, that happened over time. The response from the farmer and his son were immediate violence. And it just was, you know, shocking that that it would get to that point. We're, you know, well aware of the racism and et cetera that exists, you know, in our territories, um, you know, but for it to happen that quickly and then for the response, public response, you know, where there were elected leaders celebrating this farmer's action, um, you know, it just took, it just, you know, something just settles in the pit of your stomach. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just thought the media, the mainstream media is not going to unpack the narratives that are going to come out of this story, that, you know, Indigenous people, the stereotypes are so deeply ingrained and, you know, white farmers and, and the celebratory myth of their settling the land is so, is so strong. I thought, you know, there should be, we should do something. And I went to my producers and said, you know, this is happening. And I I was going to write about it. And then it was actually my dad and his wife who said, you're a filmmaker, you should make a film. And my, my dad's uh, wife is, is also related to the family. So yeah, it just all came together in a, in a couple of weeks. And I, I approached Jade and the others and I just said, you know, I don't know what I'll, you know, how, what, what will, what, what this will end up being, but we'd like to document these early days and, and then see if we can put together, you know, a longer film and everything fell into place for that to happen. And uh, we were able to, you know, start official filming um, the day the, tri- the the day before the trial. Uh, the jury selection was our official first day of production. Although we did, you know, as you saw in the film, follow the family from early days um, as they were trying to, you know, figure out how what this process was going to be. And you know, I guess that's the other thing is my concern over, you know what was going to happen in that legal process. And, you know, we live in a place where the typical uh, charge and sentence for a a white person who kills an Indigenous person is almost always manslaughter and almost always only a short sentence of three to four years. And, you know, that's not enough. You know, that's not a a deterrent. That's not justice. So, um, you know, I, I guess I had concerns about how this family was going to be treated. And, um, you know, I don't think I imagined uh, just how bad it was going to be, um, but I definitely thought it was an important story um, to to be with them throughout this process. It certainly is an important story, and there are so many elements to this documentary, and it, it's just such a, a, a well 
woven narrative and and you mentioned these just horribly blatant tweets excuse me tweets and, and social media posts that some of these um people were 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 publishing and posting you know in response to to the killing and it's just it's really really shocking and um one thing that i i, I found really effective in the documentary is you draw a lot on on children and, and your own son, I believe, and your nephew. You know, there's a lot of interaction with them in the documentary, and there's scenes where you're talking with them, and they're kind of, from their perspective, kind of just taking this all in. And there's even um, a scene where Colton's mother is being interviewed, and and as as a child, Colton liked Harry Potter, and he was he was he enjoyed reading, and his mother recalls something he said as a young child, and he said. The world would get along better if everyone would just get a good book and go sit under a tree. And it, I'm just never, it never ceases to amaze me at the wisdom that our young children sometimes offer. And I'm, I'm really glad that you featured those perspectives of children in, in your movie because it really, really added a whole level of depth. So, again, just a, a really, really, really powerful, powerful moving movie. Um, so, where, where you got involved with the toolkit as well, right? How are you involved with that whole process? Well, uh, you know, as Jade mentioned, I mean, we we had conversations all the time with with the family about the the gaps that are there, the the lack of communication that was you know that they experienced, and I would see it firsthand as as we were going through the trial. You know, the the the, the crown, the the crown prosecutors were you know, almost antagonistic at times. And, and it was like, this would not be happening if this family was white. Like, it's just, it's just that simple. And, and so, you know, these were ongoing conversations that we were all having. Um, and then, you know, we, and then the conversations about other families who, who we had also, um, you know, spoken with. Um, and one of the family representatives actually travel from another family who unfortunately had a similar tragedy you know she traveled to come visit the family and I met her and yeah we it just came out of conversations and and because I have this dual role as as a filmmaker and also as an academic um you know Jade and I started talking I said well maybe there's a way we can you know get a team together and and put something out there so that you know when you're getting called, like, yes, you can share your own experiences, but you can also have something, you know, tangible to go here, you know, this is what we wish we would have known going into this. And, and that's kind of how we, what we used as our guiding principle. So, um, so I reached out to Gina Star Blanket to be the co-lead and, and we put together, a, you know, a, a team and then we we met with the family, and that was our question to them: what What would you, what do you wish you'd have known? What What didn't you know? What What did you think something, and then realize it's actually different? And you know, through that, we just teased out a lot, <laughs> a lot of information that, you know, that it's just not um, in the public sphere. And, you know, something even as though, like the prosecutor, it's like, well, the prosecutor doesn't represent the family or the family's interest. You know, the, the pr- crown right. prosecutor, influ- you know, they represent the crown, they represent the state. So 
they're not there in your best interest as a family. And, and a lot of times people feel that. It's like, oh, well, they, they're, they're on our side. It's like, no, no, no. They're on the side of the state. And, you know, they're subject to the same uh, bias as, as anybody else. So, you know, and that's really, you know, what the prevailing legal critique has been of the trial is, you know, the, the issues with, with the prosecution. Um, yeah, so we wanted to, to put that in a, in a form that's, you know, accessible and, you know, straightforward and, you know, hence, you know, the, the eight booklets that range from, you know, two or three pages to uh, some that are a little longer. And it just gives gives families, uh, you know, a, a guide as, as they have to maneuver all of these different entities, right? The, the legal entities, the police, the media, it, it, it can be really overwhelming. So, yeah, we just wanted to have something that, that people could have. Well, let's go ahead and bring our third guest in, Dr. Gina Starblanket. She is a professor, associate professor at the university, excuse me, uh, an associate professor in indigenous governance at the University of Victoria. Uh, Gina, Jade and her family, they've appeared on TV, television in Canada. Jade has spoken before the Federation of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, They've even met with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as well as numerous meetings, engagements at local and regional levels. Um, I'm curious, Gina, how did the Colton Bushy case affect relationships between First Nations people and the country of Canada? Um, Well, that's a really great question. I think that um, we definitely know that the tensions uh, in between Indigenous people and settler populations, particularly in rural prairie Canada, um, have existed, you know, really since um, since settlement began in those permanent settlements began in those spaces, um, and that there has been you know a, a continuous fraught relationship between um, between indigenous uh, and uh, white rural uh, populations. I think one thing that happened was the sort of public response, in my view. Um, it, sort of took on its own sort of social and political momentum that let and um, allowed settlers in those spaces to feel much more entitled about their own deeply embedded racism, um, about the violent words and actions uh, that they hold and the assumptions and and stereotypes underlying them. Uh, So in my eyes, it just emboldened them. Um, And actually, you know, now that we have, um, uh, you know, online spaces to be able to, you know, allow those sorts of thoughts and words to proliferate in ways that people are unaccountable for, um, it, 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 yeah, it just, that that sort of hatred, um, particularly in online uh, spaces, just took off, uh, which, of course, you know, then, Indigenous people are responsive to um, and are, you know, advocating and honoring ourselves. Uh, and so I, I do definitely think that, you know, it amplified what was already pre-existing tension, racial tensions in those spaces. I'm interested also Indigenous activism, um, just overall, I mean, First Nations people are are spread out so widely throughout Canada, um, so many different First Nations groups and communities. What has been the response from other First Nations people outside of that region? I think people outside of this, uh, outside of the Prairie region, um, have expressed um, shock 
disgust. <laughs> um, they're appalled that something that sort of quote unquote, um, you know, um, justice system can be allowed uh, to unfold in that in in such an explicit and direct um, miscarriage of justice um, that someone can literally uh, admit to shooting a young indigenous man and be found not guilty, um, largely because of the narratives and sentiments that circulate in those spaces. So I'm situated out in BC, and, and when I teach about this and tell students about um, about the, the death of Colton and the trial of Gerald Stanley, they don't, they're in utter disbelief, you know? Well, folks, we have to take another break. This is Native America Calling that you're listening to. 1-800-996-2848 is the number to call if you have any questions or comments about today's show. I'm Sean Spruce. We'll be right back. Are you a Native American healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a seven-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is February 21st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about supporting families of victims of violence because sometimes family members have to deal with media and a confusing legal system while fighting for justice, all while grieving. There's still time to join our conversation. Please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Before we went to break, we were listening to Gina Starblanket, an associate professor of indigenous governance at the University of Victoria. And Gina, I, I'm curious, there was a huge outcry from First Nations people following the acquittal. Um, this has been now a few years since the acquittal um, came down. So has anything changed since that initial outcry and, and all of this, this hard work that, that Jade and her family and these other activists have done to, to further this cause and, and promote more awareness of some of these systemic racism issues and violence and whatnot? Um, yeah, I mean, Jade and her family have been so, and, and Tasha and everybody who's worked as part of our collective, you know, they've been so generous in sharing their personal experience um, with others, you know, in, in order to improve the lives um, of, and experiences of others who might un find themselves, unfortunately, in similar circumstances. And so I, I find, you know, as someone who's in Indigenous governance, um, this is advocacy work, but this is also, this is political directly political work. Um, these are political actions, um, and they're so incredibly important, these sort of strategies that emerge from a grassroots level. Um, sometimes we don't, you know, fully appreciate their meaning or significance um, because they might not, you know, look like some sort of top-down policy that's meant to kind of a formal kind of political policy that's meant to support um, Indigenous people. But these sort of grassroots community level um, uh, initiatives that are really built from a need identified from the ground up um, are so incredibly um, significant to our communities and potentially much more significant than, than some of those sort of blanket policies would ever be. 
Now you're working with to help families struggling with trauma and you know education is obviously a big part of that and and even in Tasha's film um, you know, there's references to educating Native people, but there's also, and many of Colton's family even expressed this to, to lawmakers, like, you know, the people that need education are the non-Natives as well. I mean, in some in some cases, they, they're the ones that really need the education more than us. So I'm interested, is, is there hope toward educating the public or influencing legislation to bring about some of this much-needed change? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> The sort of social and political transformation that I think many people want to see, um, it, it, it's work that has to take place from many angles, right? So decolonization, you know, it, it involves indigenous empowerment and self-determination, absolutely, but it also involves transforming the ways in which those we coexist with um, understand and interact with with us as, as indigenous people and nations. And so um, I do think education is incredibly important, um, you know, in Saskatchewan, treaty education has been mandated for some time in, the, uh, in um, kindergarten to grade 12 uh, um, the, the, in the education system there. Um, but I think that's, you know, that's a first step um, along a, a very, very long spectrum of, of work that needs to be done. Um, and, you know, education in and of itself isn't always going to bring about those sort of material changes uh, that we want to see because there there is a lot of resistance, particularly in rural spaces. I'd like to, to bring Jade back into the conversation now. Jade, what is the first thing that you would say to someone in a similar situation that you and your family have been through? What's the first thing you would say to them if they come to you for guidance? Um, the first thing I would say to them is, my my condolences and sympathy for their loss and I would want to hear about their loved one I would want to hear their name and who they were and what they were about and connect with who it is that they lost so that I'm able to 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 hold space with them in you know in their loss to to be to be with them because Everything that happens around us in this in the process of losing a loved one and then going through the trials, everything happens so fast. It's hard to know where you're at and where others are at. And so I would just want to make space for them to be able to be with that person that they lost because um, so many people hold space for Colton. You know, so many people see themselves in Colton. They see Colton is also one of their relatives. So that's the way I see all of my relations uh, across Turtle Island. Now, when you went ahead and put this resource toolkit together, obviously there, there weren't a lot of resources available for Indigenous uh, communities that were facing some of these issues, but were you able to find any other types of materials or information to kind of guide this project, or did you pretty much have to start from scratch? Uh, that's the thing is that, it was after the fact, sometimes we would learn about certain um, supports or uh, certain information, but it was mainly like scattered across different avenues. So this resource gave us the opportunity to put everything in one place so that families themselves don't have to go looking, don't have to go asking or advocating even at times because even though there are some resources out there and they're scattered, a lot of them are not indigenous specific. And going to just a general support, 
a lot of, you know, an example would be uh, mental health. If you're seeking out mental health support, we don't have very many mental health uh, resources that are Indigenous. So when we go to a general one, we almost have to educate, we have to educate them on colonialism and what's happening to us for them to get to where we're at to actually start addressing what it is that we need help with. So compiling this resource that's Indigenous specific, I think will be helpful for others to not only reach out to those resources, but also for even non-Indigenous people to inform themselves as to what the needs are out there. Well, Jade, thanks again for that background. And Tasha, I want to ask you, because obviously these types of projects, they do require funding. Has it been difficult to secure funding for this toolkit? You know, no, we were really fortunate that there was actually a specific research fund that encouraged University of Alberta and University of Calgary, uh, you know, collective, collaborative research projects. So, you know, we we were able to get the support we needed to, you know, a lot of it was travel, which uh, Gina at the time was at the University of Calgary. And, uh, you know, we co- coordinated um, a chance for this all to be in person. Um, and the, that, that visit luckily took place pre-pandemic, where we were able to sit with the family for a few days and, and talk all of this through. Um, so, no, that's been really great. And we also... Um, in one of our visits, visits to Ottawa with the film and the family, uh, we met with the National Association of Friendship Centers, uh, which are support for Indigenous peoples and urban centers. And uh, so they came on board to support. We've had other, you know, in-kind support um, from, you know, different organizations in, in Edmonton and at the university. So that's been really you know, people saw right away, okay, yeah, there's a real gap here and, and, you know, how can we fill it? And then I just want to, you know, mention one of the, you know, just in your discussion with Gina, uh, one of the things that we did at the University of Alberta in the Faculty of Native Studies is um, one of of several co-creators of an online course that is basically um, unpacking colonial stereotypes of Indigenous people. And, you know, that we saw those how, and I mentioned earlier, just how pervasive they are and how they impact people in these spaces, in legal spaces, in health spaces. Um, and so, you know, we've had a real uh, uptake of people from all over uh, North America taking these because we go right back to where did this, where did this even start? And how is it replicated? And who is invested in these stereotypes continuing? And, um, you know, we really saw this in all aspects of this case, whether it was the online response, whether it was the stereotypes within the courtroom, whether it was how the police treated Colton's family. I mean, that's, you know, one of the most egregious things that happened was, you know, as Jade said, they treated Colton's uh, mother as though she was a suspect and were, you know, just so awful to her. And, you know, that was something you know, we, when we were thinking of the guides, like how do we, how do we support people working with police? And, and, you know, this is an area where there is so much potential, um, you know, for uh, Indigenous people to be mistreated um, because of the way police view Indigenous people. So, you know, absolutely education is part of it. And, and as you pointed out, you know, we're learning, we're, we're figuring things out, 
um, and absolutely, you know, that that knowledge and learning needs to come uh, from from the communities, you know, that are our neighbors, and uh, you know, that haven't haven't always acted neighborly. <laughs> so you know, um, so you know, these are these are things that we were thinking about. Tasha, it seems it's almost overwhelming when I think of the type of strength to face this type of trauma. And, you know, we've been talking about the need for education, the need for help navigating the legal system, the need to support people emotionally. But are, are there other types of support that families might need who are in this, this type of drastic situation? You know, I, I would say you know, all of those things. I would also say, you know, we're in a time um, where for a long time the media didn't pay much attention to Indigenous people, and that shifted. And there are reputable journalists, um, you know, who, who uh, have, have done the work of examining their bias and, and are trying to tell the story. Um, there are also journalists who have not done that work. And you know, I think that the narratives that are put out into the world, you know, have rip, have a you know an immense rippling effect. And you know, I think that is that is something else that we put in one of the guides was you know how to how to work with the media, how to determine who what your message is that you want to go, you know, because you know people are at there are, are so vulnerable in these moments, right? They they've had this you know enormous loss. Uh, are reeling from it and, you know, um, are sometimes put in situations where, you know, they're, they're um, being interviewed and potentially sharing things that aren't for the public. Um, you know, so I think that's one area for sure that, that our, our communities having a better awareness of, of, of the media and, and how to speak with media. And, you know, that's something we really learned from, from our film's publicist who was, really wonderful and who not only helped with, with the film, but also, you know, would help the families in, in how to, you know, how, how, how to go into interviews, how to prepare for them. Um, you know, sometimes the interviewers would ask Jade and Debbie specific questions designed to make them cry because that was the kind of journalism that they were wanting was they wanted the high emotional moment and not thinking about, what they're putting this family through, you know, and with these kinds of questions, um, where they're forced to relive, you know, these, these, these incidents. So, yeah, you know, we're, you know, we're, that is one area I think that, that there needs, you know, needs to be more awareness of how, how to handle those things. Yeah. It's all about the clicks and the likes and, and getting the views. Um, and, and which is what makes your, your documentary so so useful and so effective in, in, in telling this story and getting this message out. Jade, you know, when I was watching the documentary, you know, there were points like, you know, when it came to the jury selection and there, the one native person that was, that could have possibly been on the jury, he gets sent away. And it just seems like there were all of these roadblocks and that every, every time that kind of looked like something might, might go in your favor, just another door slammed shut. And I, I'd imagine that there were times when you felt pretty hopeless through that whole ordeal. What helped you get through that? <laughs> yeah. It, um, every obstacle we encountered and honestly, every 
every shutdown or letdown that we encountered was just um, just another another thing. And for me, it was smudging, you know, just being taught to smudge and and um, staying true to who I was. And when I was angry, I I I did my best not to let it consume me. I would push it to where it needed to be, whether it was speaking out, whether it was pushing for another meeting, but um, it does definitely feel like a helpless battle when you push back on systems of colonialism, like the legal system that's supposed to deliver justice. I don't call it the justice system. I call it the legal system because it, in our experience, was not a justice system. So I just, I encourage others to, to connect with family, friends, smudge, um, grieve when you can, and, and don't settle. I feel that as Indigenous people, we have a right to justice. We have a right to compassion. We have a right to respect. And for those who, who aren't at that place to be able to, to deliver that to us, we will continue to stand up and speak out so that future generations don't encounter what we encounter, especially the, the young people. I never want our young people to believe the stereotypes and the narratives put out there about us or pushed upon us, but to know that you are more than what white people say, what white systems say about us. And that resilience comes from our ancestors who survived cultural genocide, survived industrial and residential schools. So we'll continue to be here and we'll continue to speak out and we'll continue to fight for justice for all our people. Well, Jade, you mentioned smudging and, and, and also um, give a big hug to that husband of yours because I know he's a huge support and he's in, in the film as well and really inspirational story. Folks, I'm sorry, but that is all the time we have for this show today. A wonderful conversation. I'd like to say thank you to our guests, Jade Tatusis, Dr. Tasha Hubbard, and Dr. Gina Starblanket for enlightening us with their stories and leadership in supporting Indigenous families who are survivors of violence. Join us tomorrow as we revisit White Clay, Nebraska, more than four years after the border town's liquor stores were shut down. I'm Sean Spruce. Please stay safe, and thank you for listening. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Stronghearts Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Stronghearts Native Helpline. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.